Uh, I invite you to turn this morning once again to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Last Sunday, uh, we ended our sermon uh, by reflecting on the practice of some of the Pharisees to put fences around God's law because they believed that those fences would protect them from sin and from being sinned against. This morning, we're going to reflect on how God's people can put up fences around our own hearts because we're afraid of being wrong. And we're afraid that Jesus will not meet our errors with his kindness or with his mercy. Like last Sunday, our passage again focuses on the Sabbath rest and also what obedience to God's commands about the Sabbath day looks like. And what we're going to see is that the heart of the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is not just a debate about what's lawful and not lawful, though there is that, and we're going to talk about that. It's important. But as Jesus' questions and as the Pharisees' uh, reaction will show, the Pharisees' hearts are filled with fear that they've been wrong about something as important as theology and obedience to God and that God will then therefore respond with harshness and judgment rather than with grace and mercy. Uh, Maybe you're afraid of that. Maybe you're afraid that if you get something wrong, that God will take away his goodness and his forgiveness. And maybe that fear causes you to cling very tightly to things that you know are harming yourself or harming others, but you're just too afraid to let go Because after all, what if Jesus is not on the other side of error? What if Jesus won't forgive? What if he won't help? What if he won't heal? What if I let go and I meet God as an executioner and not as a shield and defender? Every one of us at some point in the Christian life has that fear and usually has it more than once. Our passage this morning teaches us how to face that fear, or rather, who allows us to face that fear. It teaches us what to look for in Jesus himself, and also what to look look out for in ourselves so that we can have confidence that Jesus gives us the rest of life and delight and communion with God, which, as we talked about last Sunday, is what Sabbath rest is, life, delight, and communion with God. This morning, I want us to see that the fences we build to protect ourselves from Jesus aren't necessary because we don't need to protect ourselves from Jesus because Jesus is, in fact, good and gracious and forgiving and he heals the wounds of his people and even the wounds his people have inflicted on others. I think we all need this encouragement this morning. Uh, We need it for ourselves. We definitely need it for our church. We need need it for our loved ones and our neighbors So let's get it by reading and then reflecting on Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Let's hear God's word this morning. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, 
And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we don't want to be filled with fury at the words of Jesus. Uh, We want to be filled with repentance and faith and hope. But we know that that is not possible unless your spirit is at work in our hearts to take your word and, and write it there so that we can live by faith and confidence in the character of Christ and in the work he's done for us. So therefore, Father, we pray that your spirit this morning would give us minds to understand, ears to hear, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word this morning May they all be pleasing now in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to understand the Pharisees' seemingly illogical and irrational response to what Jesus did, and to help us see the hard issues too that I, I said that are here, and I believe fully are here, we need to understand the debate that lies behind this text. At issue here is the fact that sometimes... You have to choose which law of God to keep and which law of God to break. Because by keeping one commandment, you end up breaking another commandment. And I know that sounds a little crazy, but let me explain. Uh, When God gives Israel the Sabbath commands, he commands them to rest, to worship, and to rejoice. The Sabbath day is a day when God wants his people to be thankful, joyful, worshipful, delighted, and resting, meaning that if there are things that tend to rob us of joy and delight or that qualify as work, God's people are generally freed on the Sabbath from doing those things. And as a matter of fact, it's more than that. They actually tend to break God's command by doing those kinds of things. But there are other commands too. There are commands to show mercy. There are commands to preserve life. There are commands to be hospitable and to show compassion. And those commands don't always allow you to rejoice perfectly or be completely thankful or be fully rested. And this is why in Jesus' day, there were debates about whether or not you should, not can, but should take an ox out of a ditch on the Sabbath or if you should throw it some food and leave it until tomorrow. Digging out the ox says that mercy is more important than rest. And you're choosing to obey the command to be merciful to the ox over the command to rest from work. Leaving the ox there says that rest is more important than mercy. And you're choosing to obey the command to not work rather than choosing to obey the command to be merciful to the ox. And as Matthew Thiessen has pointed out in his super interesting book, Jesus and the Forces of Death, Central to our passage is most likely a debate about whether or not to visit the sick and the dying on the Sabbath. 
Some argued, yes, you should do that because mercy is a greater obligation than Sabbath joyfulness because visiting the dying doesn't make you happy. But others said, no, because Sabbath joyfulness is a greater obligation than mercy. Now, you can tell which side of the debate Jesus comes down on. Uh, And not just here. Remember last week when Jesus said, David eating the bread of the presence and giving it to his men, which was the right thing to do, even though it broke God's command that only the priest can eat the bread. Jesus was saying the same kind of thing there too. The commands to preserve your life and the life of others is greater than the command that only the priests can eat the bread of the presence. Now, having said all this, I want us to avoid hearing this Sabbath debate as some sort of ancient, stupid, legalistic nonsense. I want us to hear it for what it was, which was a deep desire to obey God and to make God happy. I want us to feel the importance of getting obedience right and feel the fear of, and consequences of getting obedience wrong. Also, I want us to realize that we have to reckon with the fact that as Jesus himself says in Matthew 23, 23, there are matters of the law that are in fact weightier than others. And there are times when we have to weigh out which command we are going to follow to the fullest extent. So two quick examples here, one historical, one contemporary, one easier, I think, one significantly harder. Uh, Here's the historical one. It's also the easy one. If you're hiding Jews from the Nazis, do you lie when asked, right? Do you put the command to not murder and to save a life above the command to not lie and to tell the truth in that instance or not? Because you cannot obey both, right? You cannot say, are there Jews behind the door? If there are, you can't say yes and save a life and you can't say no and not lie. You have to commit, you can't keep the command to tell the truth and keep the command to save the life in that scenario. You have to choose. Now, that example is, I think, significantly easier for us, both because Jesus tells us repeatedly throughout the Gospels, you save a life, even if it causes you to break another commandment. It's also easier for us because today, people who did that are regarded very correctly as heroes. Though in their own day, it was way more controversial. And the decision that you made determined the way that you viewed your relationship to God and the way you viewed others' relationship with God, the way you judged their faithfulness, the way they judged your faithfulness. And there's consequences to the decision you make. If you decided that God doesn't want me to lie, you maybe condemn some people to death. And then maybe you discovered that was wrong, and now you have to live with those consequences. Do you see the? Do you feel the weight? And that let me give you a much more modern, more fraught example that will help us understand emotionally what was at stake in this debate about how to obey the Sabbath commands. Um, a homosexual wedding, do you attend or not? By attending, you're breaking commands regarding the honoring of marriage. By not attending, you're breaking commands regarding living at peace with all people. Or if it's your parents, as some uh, some friends of mine have had to deal with, you're breaking commands about honoring your father and mother or not. Do you feel the tension? 
Like I can see, like you feel the burden, right? Like I want to love my friends and family. I want to, love, want to honor God and love him above all things. But the way I do that in this case, it's just not obvious. It's actually debatable. It's scary. And I could be wrong. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, Pastor Matt, you're going to solve the problem to the question you raised, right? And uh, no, I am not the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, But I know it's not fair to leave without two things to think about. So I'm going to give you just two things to think about. And this is me speaking with kind of pastoral advice. This is not Jesus from Mount Sinai or Mount Zion, okay? The first would be, I doubt there can be a cookie-cutter answer that applies to every relationship because not every relationship has the same obligations put on it. Coworkers aren't friends. Friends aren't parents. Parents aren't children. The kind of obligations we have to love our neighbors and our spouses and our children and our friends and our family are not exactly the same. So that's one thing that I'll say. You can't just say yes, no, full stop. It would be easier, but you can't. Here's another thing to think about. Generally speaking, the Bible makes relationships a priority. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to be hospitable. We're called to live at peace as far as it depends on our actions with all people. Romans chapter 13, one of my, or 15, one of my favorite passages. We are called and commanded to be kind and gracious. So with that, my general advice, which is not my universal advice, is weddings are a day, relationships are a decade or a lifetime. And the opportunity to express love over decades, particularly with children and parents, seems to be a very weighty consideration when deciding what to do in this very difficult situation. But again, my point is not to solve it. It's to make you feel what's at issue in our text. What is at issue is how you think God views you because of your choice. And how you think God's people will view you because of your choice. What's at stake is how you relate to the world around you and your fears about what will happen to you if you are wrong. And now that you have that intellectual and emotional context, I think we're in a place to consider what Jesus is saying about the law and the word and the Sabbath, and to also reflect on why the Pharisees got furious when he said what he did. So let's reflect on Jesus' teaching first. I think both because it will help us think about some of the things I raised, but, but also because it will, I hope, clarify our image of God in a really life-giving way. So our text says in verse 6, On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So this tells us this is during a worship service. And Jesus is preaching. He's explaining what his word means as the author of the Bible. And while he's explaining, the Pharisees realize that there's a man with a withered hand there. Which makes me think that Jesus was probably teaching about the Sabbath and the rest that God gives us on the Sabbath day. Now, it's important for us to recognize this man was not at death's door. He's not in urgent need. He didn't suddenly break his arm. There wasn't a bone sticking out. He's not bleeding all over the place. And yet the Pharisees look at this man in the worship service and they start 
wondering to themselves, is Jesus going to heal this guy on the Sabbath? And then they start thinking, well, if he does that, I can accuse him of breaking God's law. And since we know that whether to heal or not on the Sabbath was a debated issue, even among the Pharisees, we can tell that the goal of accusing Jesus is actually more to defend themselves than it is God's honor. To distance themselves from the one who is making them uncomfortable with, the, with their relationships with God and the world. Because after all, in the middle of church, the Pharisees are not focused on God. They aren't focused on this man's needs or what's good for him. They're focused on defending the life they've lived and the decisions they've made on their answers to debated issues. Then verse 8, But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with a withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. I'm sure very confused. So after knowing their thoughts, which I think must have been filled with fear that their choices were going to be proven wrong, you can't wind up on the right on the winning end of an argument with Jesus about the word, right? That's just not going to happen. It's his word. So with I think they're afraid their choices are going to be proven wrong and they're probably also filled with anxiety about what that would mean for their self-identity. What does Jesus do? He shows them the life that God wants to give us all through him. Jesus brings this man into the center of the synagogue, which turns him, I think importantly for us to see, from a theological problem that might hurt me into a person who needs healing and love and help. And then Jesus asks a question that brings us to the very heart of the matter, which is something only the author of the Bible can do. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life? Or to destroy it. Now, what's really interesting about this question is clearly Jesus is not going to do harm. Right? Jesus is not going to destroy this man. And not even that, there was no threat of harm to this man. He was not bleeding out. He was not dying. This is something he's had for a long time. So why does Jesus put the question in this way? Why make it a choice between these two things when there's not that choice? in actuality, right then? Here's why I think. By putting this question this way, Jesus focuses their attention on God's purpose for his law. Has God given us the Bible and his rules and his commands to do us harm or to do us good? Has he given them to save us or to destroy us? Does God reveal himself in order to execute us or to resurrect us? Does he walk with us in order to catch us out as sinners and so banish us? Or does he walk with us to redeem us and adopt us into life through repentance and faith in Christ? If you go back and you read the law, just like we talked about a few years ago when we looked at Deuteronomy, God himself defines the the Bible and the law over and over again as aiming at life and liberty and godliness and wholeness. The law's goal is to allow us to receive God's forgiveness and to teach us how to live in joy and to express love. 
God literally says this in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, And the Lord commanded us to do these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. God gave the word for our good and for the preservation of our life. And I think Jesus has this text and a number of others in mind as he brings this man forward and asks them, what does God want us to do? See, by putting the question this way, I think Jesus is inviting the Pharisees to a better understanding of God and his word, which they knew deep inside their own hearts. Because, though you can't see it from this text exactly. Many of the Pharisees clearly did not see God as anything like a father. They saw him as a cold-eyed judge who simply weighs the balances of obedience and disobedience and then acts accordingly. So you better not be wrong, ever. Jesus is inviting them to see God as a life-giving, forgiving, merciful Father. And therefore, to the realization that it is safe to view people as people and not as problems, it's safe to be wrong, It's safe to be mistaken and to err because even if you err, you are not falling into the hands of an angry God, but into the arms of a loving Father. But that invitation isn't received, very tragically. Uh, Jesus looks around after that question and you notice everyone is silent. And that silence means they chose harm and death over life and goodness for that man. And we know that because in Mark and Matthew's gospel, Jesus gets angry at their silence and he views it as hard-heartedness. And a hard heart is simply a refusal to repent and trust in God's mercy and goodness and grace. But that detail is not in our passage because Luke wants to focus on their response in verse 11 but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Like, fury. Their face turned all the shades of purple. Fury is not something you can hide behind a smile. When you are furious, it is obvious. And I'm hoping now that their response of being furious makes more sense now. Their fury isn't irrational. It's not even hatred necessarily, though of course it results in hatred later on. It's fear-driven. Anger is not always because you've been offended. Sometimes it's because you are just terrified and afraid. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. I think the Pharisees are afraid of facing a lifetime of saying no to deeds of kindness and mercy and sacrifice to people they love because they thought they were saying yes to God in the way God wanted. And they're afraid of what it will mean if they admit to themselves and to their loved ones, I was wrong and I hurt you. Like, will there be grace there? Will there be healing there? Will Jesus really be there to put the pieces back together. It's too scary to think about, the Pharisees say. It's so frightening. I think I'd rather get rid of Jesus than entrust myself 
to Jesus. And in that light, let me end with this this morning. I think it's important to say this. Um, obedience to Jesus is important. Obedience is life-giving and God-honoring, and God honors it. God responds joyfully to our obedient response. I want to be clear about that. But as important as our obedience is, and as important as good interpretation of the Bible is, and it is important, our life and our hope are not there, my friends. They are in Jesus himself. Our life and hope is in the God who meets our errors with his repairing kindness, who hears our confessions with his compassionate ear, and who covers our sins with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Isn't that what we mean when we say we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Not by me being right or perfect, but by Jesus being gracious and catching me and my loved ones and my neighbors when we fall and putting it all back together because he's the God who makes all things new. So there's freedom that Jesus is trying to give his people here that I want us all to have It's a freedom which Jesus was inviting the Pharisees into, but they were too afraid and rejected it. And that freedom is do your best to obey God, but don't trust in your obedience. Trust in God. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Trust in God. Don't be anxious about admitting error and asking for forgiveness. Trust in God. Don't be terrified when your best efforts end up making just a giant mess of things which none of us have ever had the experience of ever, right? I know I've been perfect my entire life. I've never made a mess of anything. No, my friends, you have to trust in God because he raises the dead and he makes all things new. Did Jesus come and give us himself and give give us his word to save our life or to destroy it, to do us good or do us harm? Trust that Jesus wants to do us good and to save our life. And if you need to admit error, even on something as important as an intrinsic theological concept, it's okay. You're not saved by theology. You're saved by Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that even when our best efforts at obedience fail and we are wrong, that you remain gracious and merciful. Thank you that you bring life out of death, wholeness out of brokenness, and unity out of division. Thank you that you make all things new. Please help us to trust in you so that we can admit our failures and our faults and seek your restoration and healing. Uh, Please give us the freedom that comes from resting not in our excellence, but in your kindness, which you have shown so powerfully to us in Jesus. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.